Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to open this book, your word, the only book that can truly be considered inspired, God-breathed. Thank you that we know that it's true and that your spirit teaches us, unveiling the glory of what you have penned through your penman. Help us this morning to recognize the importance of this text and to respond appropriately to what you have revealed. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you familiar with the group known as the Sons of Liberty? The History Channel did a a, a series on it. I didn't watch it, so I don't really know exactly how they portrayed it, but it portrays a group of, of people that stood at the beginning of the American Revolution. So I've taken a little snippet from History Central that I thought would give us a little synopsis of their, their role in our American history. It reads, When word of the enactment of the stamp tax spread throughout the colonies, protests began in Boston, riots developed directed against both royal officials and anyone who agreed to distribute the stamps. The mob directed its anger at Andrew Oliver, who had agreed to be an agent of the stamp tax. They hung him in effigy and threatened him if he did not resign, uh, which he did. The rioting quickly spread to other colonies. Throughout the colonies, the agents for the stamp tax were forced to resign. Behind much of the rioting was a new organization that had been founded to defend the liberties of the colonists. The passage of the Stamp Act created the first sustained opposition to the British. The opposition was not only political. The opposition also took on the form of demonstrations, rioting, and other acts of violence. The violent actions were not spontaneous. The actions were coordinated and implemented by a new organization called the Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty were founded in the summer of 1765 by a group of shopkeepers and artisans in Boston. The founders of the group were not the most prominent of Boston citizens. However, the group included Benjamin Eads, who was a printer, and John Gill, who ran the Boston Gazette, thus assuring they were able to spread their message. The first action the Sons of Liberty initiated took place on August 14, 1765. The Sons burned an effigy of Andrew Oliver, who was slated to become the commissioner of the Stamps. Uh, for Massachusetts. That night, a mob burned part of Oliver's property in Boston and ransacked and an abandoned house belonging to Oliver. The Sons of Liberty quickly spread to all the colonies. Their goal was to undermine all attempts to enforce the Stamp Act. Their actions were successful. There was no royal uh, force available to counter the Sons of Liberty. The actions of the Sons of Liberty were instrumental in forcing the British to repeal the Stamp Act. After their initial victory, the Sons of Liberty continued their anti-British agitations with such actions as planting liberty trees in New York and burning of the royal revenue cutter, the Gatsby. Now, we've heard of the Sons of Liberty. And interestingly, their fight was a fight for freedom, liberating from under a a taxation without representation protocol. But what is sad and interesting and unfortunate is that 
as we look at religion through a wide-angled lens, it appears that there is a far greater tendency for us to be sons of bondage. Where God has provided salvation and freedom, man has sought a salvation of his own making and bondage. This is the religion of our time, and it has been the religion of many, many years. In the book of Galatians, Paul is trying to help his readers and the church of Galatia realize the severity of the teachings that run contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, after we have a a short review, we'll study the passage in Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. In this text, what we'll notice is that Paul tells believers that they are born supernaturally from a free mother. And therefore, they should not allow themselves to pursue anything that would bring them back into bondage. But before we dive into that section, it's important for us to review where we are in our study of the book of Galatians. First of all, we'll remember in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, that Paul had told us that the beginning of the Christian life is by faith. And continuance in the Christian life is by faith. This is the the start, meeting, uh, uh, medium, and end of the Christian life. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, we'll remember that Paul told us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became the curse of sin, took the judgment and penalty for sin, so we might be alleviated from that curse. And then in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, the entrance of law does not nullify the promise that comes by faith. The introduction of the law, back in Exodus, does not nullify the promise from Genesis that comes through faith. And the promise is, you'll remember, that God, through the seed of Abraham, would bless all the nations of the earth. That was a promise that God made. And the introduction of the law doesn't nullify that promise. In chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, actually we just covered that, verses 19 through 29, the end of that chapter, Paul then discusses the purpose of the law. If the law doesn't nullify what was previously known as promise, what exactly is the point of the law? Why did God introduce it? First of all, it was to reveal sin in verses 19 through 23. Remember Paul said, "If if I didn't know the commandment to not covet, I wouldn't know sin. Remember that in the book of Romans? The law reveals our sin. It it condemns us as sinners. Additionally, the law was given in verses 24 to 26 to be our guardian. To be our guardian. Look there at verse 24 of chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. Paul writes, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. A guardian's job was to teach the ways the father would like his children to operate. The guardian was 
teaching the elementary ways and principles of life. They formed the foundation of how a family wanted their family to run. For instance, just as an illustration, in a secular manner, as a, as a father, I want to teach my son to hold the door open for a lady. That is just a, a, a way that I, I think it demonstrates respect. That is a custom that I think that I want my family to hold to. Another tradition that you can say is, is, uh, has been common over the years and has probably been almost entirely lost in this day is if you're sitting at a dinner table and a woman comes to the table or leaves the table, it used to be the custom that the man at the table would stand up out of respect for this, this uh, woman that was coming or departing from the table. These are, these are elementary ways. They're not spiritual. They're not unspiritual. They're, they're just customs. A guardian would train a child of the, the leader of the house in the ways of that house. That's what a guardian does. From the perspective of the purpose of the law, its moral components demonstrate the way God's people should conduct themselves as subjects of His kingdom. For instance, God has told us not to murder or to lie or to steal or to covet. God has told us not to do these things because they demonstrate the family's values. It demonstrates the values of the kingdom. The law has not only come to reveal our sin, but to show us this is how my kingdom is to be ordered. The ceremonial component of the law was completely done away in Christ, for these components of the law were a shadow, whereas Christ is the substance. We see that in the book of Colossians. Now, just briefly... In Galatians and in elsewhere, God teaches us that the moral elements of the law do not ensure holiness. They do not ensure holiness, and they do not ensure acceptance with God. No one has come into a relationship with God that is eternal through the law. It doesn't make us holy, and it doesn't make us right with God. The keeping of the law demonstrates the keeping of the law demonstrates a holiness that the standard of the law proclaims, but law-keeping does not make us holy, rather union with Jesus Christ himself, who never violated the law under any circumstances, but always perfectly obeyed the law. It is that union with Christ that makes us righteous and acceptable to God. The law can't do this. You'll remember what James says, if we violate one of the commandments of the law, we are guilty of the whole of the law. So the law can never bring us to the point of a right relationship with God or perfect acceptance. Only union with Jesus Christ, which comes by faith. On a daily basis, our holy standing is either hidden, hidden because we are operating according to the flesh, or our holy standing is demonstrated because we are operating according to the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells you right now where you are, you are holy. It is not questionable. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are holy. Why? Because all of your actions always indicate holiness? No, that is not the reason that God says you're holy. God says you're holy because He has united you together with the only holy being 
that has taken on flesh? Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And through our relationship or our union with him, his holiness has been attributed to our account. When the law stands above us as our taskmaster, we cannot help but to crumble under the weight of the law. We cannot hold it all up. It is impossible for us. We are unable. At just the right time, according to Galatians chapter 4, God took the rod out of the law's hand. God took the rod out of the law's hand. How did He do that? Well, through Jesus, God redeemed us from the law's judgment. Look at verse 4 and following of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His, the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We also notice in this text that through Jesus, God changed our status from slaves of the law, or slaves to the law, to sons of God. So this is where we're coming. We've come from here. The last section that we we covered before we arrived here is in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Paul challenges his readers not to turn back to slavery. In verses 8 and 9, he reminds them of the change of relationship. Look what it says there. Formerly, you who did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or better, rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements or elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So he reminds us of a change in status, a change in relationship. Before, we didn't know God, and now we know God, and even better, God knows us. He's removed us. He's changed us from slavery to elementary principles that do not bring us to God. And he has given us sonship, a relationship with him that is unending. In verses 10 through 16, he reminds them of their former tutelage under his teaching. Remember, he says... uh, Before, you would have given me your own eye if I asked. That's that's how dear our relationship was. But something has changed. In verses 17 and 18, he unveils the evil motives of the false teachers. Look what he says there. They, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they want to make you beholden to them so that you'll keep on coming back to them. No good purpose. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. Then in verses 19 and 20, he restates his purpose of seeing them properly display Jesus Christ. He wants Christ to be formed in them. What does that mean? He wants Christ to be formed in them. He wants them to be living epistles 
of Christ. Living letters of Christ. He wants them, as they go about their daily lives, in the church, out of the church, in their home, at the workplace, in the marketplace, He wants them to be those that display the person of Jesus Christ. How does this take place? You who began in the Spirit, how can you be made perfect by the flesh? You can't. If you've begun in the Spirit, you must continue on in the Spirit. And so implication there very clearly is that the Christ is formed in us through faith, not by our fleshly endeavors. So, we've arrived now at our study. Verses 21 to 31 this morning. Now, there's so much in this text. There are so many implications. We, we could not possibly answer all the questions that could arise from this text because it is, it's really dense. We will try our best to get the main idea. The main idea is pretty self-evident, and that is... We are sons of liberty. Do not allow yourself to come back under the bondage of what God has freed you from. And if someone is preaching in a way as to bring you underneath that, uh, that bondage, send them away. That is the whole idea of this text. With that being said, let's read the text and then unfold it. Galatians 4.21 and following, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see how there's so much in there? People probably have questions about okay, what are you talking about, slave and free. And those, it's, an, it's an analogy. It's an illustration. There are answers to those questions that you may have about this, but that's not the main point of the text. And so we can't divert our attention from the main point. First of all, in verses 21 to 25, this is the main idea of that section that that we want to understand. Know what you're getting yourself into. Know what you're getting yourself into. He's challenging the Galatians. And he's challenging that inner voice inside of us that is beholden to law-keeping as a way of pleasing God. You have it in you. 
You have that, that voice in the back of your head that says, well, if you really want God to be happy with you, if you really want God to bless you, if you really want God to, to be on your side, do X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z are all good things. I'm not even be biblical things. Do these things and God will be on your side. You'll be good. He'll bless you and, and keep His promises to you. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? Do you think that that's correct? No. And that's what Paul is saying here. You desire to be under the law. Do you even listen to what the law is saying? You know what you're getting yourself into? You know what you're in for with this, this, this law-keeping, or taskmaster law that, that you want to place yourself under? You, you really want to go down that road? You had better listen to what that road leads to. This is what he tells us. And he does it through this illustration of Abraham with Hagar and Sarah, and even more specifically, the two sons. If you want a nice little outline for this section, it's two sons, two paths, two messages. Nice and simple. Two sons, two paths, two messages. First of all, two sons. Ishmael, one that was born by a slave woman. Isaac, one that was born by a free woman. We know who those women are. They're Hagar and Sarah. Two paths. Ishmael, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. All right, well, that could be taken in a couple of different ways. And I think really the implication is both of these ways are important to understand. First of all, born according to the flesh means the natural way. Two people, male and female, have... um, Sexual intercourse, and as the, pro- the process is, a baby is conceived. That's the natural way. This is the way it happens all the time. It happens every day. Hundreds of babies, thousands of babies are born every day. It's been going on for generations and generations. There are some notable exceptions to this natural way. There is uh, Hannah. Remember, Hannah was barren, and God opened her womb and produced Samuel. There's this particular illustration of um, Sarah, who was barren, and God opened her womb, and as a result, Isaac comes. And then, of course, we know the most important one of these exceptions, though there are others, the most important, Mary, who was not barren, but was a virgin, and she, by God's grace and implanting of seed, bore forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, pure Son of God. The natural way and then the supernatural way. Well, Ishmael, to no fault of his own, was born the natural way, like everybody else was. That's one way to understand it, and I think it's important to understand it that way because we'll see the opposite in Isaac's life. Additionally, we can also see this element of him being born according to the flesh, not according to God's design. Not according to God's design. Okay, so here's the question. Was Hagar Abraham's wife? Nope. Violation. <laughs> Bad news. Shouldn't ought to have done that. So this is not, according to God's design, something that is fleshly. Was Abraham promised a son through Hagar? <laughs> Violation again. Fleshly, rebellious pathway. I have an idea of how this can be accomplished. That was Sarah's idea. 
And Abraham, gullible as ever, thought, seems all right to me. I think uh, you might want to rethink those things before you respond in your flesh to something. But Abraham uh, acquiesces in, in, in this fleshly way. Something that is to be accomplished for God, accomplished by our own means. That's the natural way, born according to the flesh. Then we have Isaac was born through promise. Isaac was born through promise. The unnatural way. Oh, what do you mean? Well, it still took Abraham and Sarah, though it was pretty natural in that regard. But what was so unnatural? Well, they were too old. The Bible says in Romans 4, verse 19, when he, Abraham, considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. So it took faith for this to come to pass. So it's something supernatural. Not only that, in that same passage, Sarah was barren, it says in Romans 4.19, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Isaac was born through promise. He came the unnatural way, or better stated, the supernatural way. Isaac was also born in accordance with divine enablement. Divine enablement. I want us to look at this. We already read um, from the screen, Romans 4.19. But I now I want to put it in context. So head over there to Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. So Isaac is an example of something taking place through promise. The supernatural way. Ishmael through the flesh, the natural way, and the way that's contrary to the design of God. As we come into the Isaac portion of it, we, we see the supernatural way and in accordance with God's design. God's design is always, this is how I want to do it, and this is how I will do it in and through you. Okay? God's divine enablement. What do we call that, folks? Grace. Grace is not, God forgives everything of everyone of all time, and He doesn't really care if you sin. That is not grace. Mercy is that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about our sin. It means He's paid for our sin. Grace also doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our sin. Grace has the idea that God gifts us with forgiveness. God gifts us with righteousness. God gifts us with sonship. God gifts us with eternal life. God gifts us with a relationship with Him. And here in this text, uh, God gifts us with the ability to do the things He calls us to do. Romans chapter 4, verses 17 and following. It says, As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom you, he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Remember, his body was dead. And, and Sarah's womb is dead. And Isaac isn't alive. And God took that deadness and made life where there was none. Did you know that that's what God does every time a person comes to know Christ? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And God in His grace grants to you, granted to me, life. This is exactly what happens in salvation. What happens here in Abraham's illustration. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not uh, weaken in faith. Really? Well, I believe God's word. God's word is true. What is this? This just tells me something about God's mercy. 
that God overlooked the ridiculousness of Abraham's sinfulness in violating the marriage covenant, in operating in the flesh, God just passes over it. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. Well, that's the, the long and the short of it. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God, God was able to do what he had promised That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Trust God's promises. This is the illustration. And what we notice is Abraham was doing doing what he could do to bring this along, even in the right design, right? And yet Sarah and he never bore forth. Never bore forth, never bore forth. He was doing what he, what he knew to be, done, to, to, to be right, to, to fulfill the promise. He trusted God, and he was doing what was responsible over and over again. And, and nothing was coming of it. His, his body was dead, and her womb was dead, until, until God said, I'm ready to do what only I can do. This is, this is the way it works, folks. We, we're very hands-on. We're very tangible. We're very sight-oriented. We're very taste, smell, touch. This is, it's, it's who we are. God made us with these five senses. And we operate our lives in accordance with the five senses all the time. And God wants us to not rely simply on our senses, but also on the very things that He has promised so that we will trust Him. And here's Abraham waiting, believing, and, and, and God finally brings to, for, brings to pass the promise. Notice this, though. You have to participate. There's a participation involved. And I, and I, don't, I, I don't want to get too um, into the weeds here. I'm just going to say it like this. If Abraham slept in his tent... And Sarah slept in her tent, and they both believed God. Where is Isaac coming from? You guessed it, nowhere. So in order for them to demonstrate their trust in God's promise, they were in the same tent. We got it? No more need? All right, we've covered that. Now, take a look at James chapter 2, just for a a principle that goes along with us, that, that is important to us. Divine enablement, God's supernatural work, faith results in action. Action does not result in God's blessing. Faith results in God's blessing. But faith also results in action. We can't say, oh God, I believe all that you said. And I'm just going to sit over on the couch here and and see if it will all happen. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, I believe you, God. You're going to do that. So I'm just going to sit over here and, and trust that it's going to get done. That's not how it works. We believe God that He's going to bring a people for Himself. We believe in, in, in God's ability to, to gather people and to, to take them from death to life. And I know I can't do it. But I also know that God has told me to preach the gospel. 
And so we preach it and we believe. And because we believe, we preach. Right? That's how it works. So in James chapter 2, look at what it says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith. What does it say? By my works. I will show you my faith. He didn't say, I will show you my works. He said, I will show you the faith that God has worked in me. And it has displayed itself in works. We read it and we say, oh, well, James is the author of good works and Paul is the author of liberty. God is the author of Scripture and He wrote both James and the Pauline epistles. They're saying the same thing. The emphasis might be slightly different. James is telling us that when we have faith, it issues forth evidently. Look now at uh, verse 21 and following. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It doesn't mean that his works completed his faith. His faith was fully manifest. The the completion of his faith was fully demonstrated in an action that God worked through him. Here he is walking up the mountain with his son Isaac and he's thinking, what in the world is this all about? I'm 115 or whatever years old walking up a mountain and and, and I was 75 and God made this promise and, and, and at 90 I had Ishmael and at 100 I have Isaac. What is this about him having me sacrifice him? This is... This is nuts. This is nuts. This this isn't normal. We know what was going on in his heart because of what it says in Hebrews. That's you know, and and what he said to his son when his son says, "Uh, uh, "Dad, (laughs) fire, wood, where's the offering?" God will provide Himself a sacrifice. And there was the ram caught in the thicket. God has provided himself a sacrifice instead of Isaac. The one that God wanted was sacrificed was a ram. All of this, a demonstration of complete and utter faith. It's the way Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. This thing that we're reading in James that is depicting what we're talking about in Galatians, it was communicated in the book of Philippians. It says in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen carefully, work out. Work out. Work to the outside. Work to display. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. You see, faith in God and in His promise and in the Gospel and in the Word of God, faith in God results in a desire to do what the Scripture says. And, even better, the ability to do what it says. Here we are, and we, you know, when, when we are in our flesh, which happens... Daily, we're in our flesh and we're thinking, okay, God wants me to do this and so I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. And, and sometimes it's against our will and sometimes it's kind of laborious and, and, and you kind of don't want to do it. Anyone ever been there? 
Anytime you're doing God's will, and I use that term loosely, and, and you don't want to do it, is it telling you something? It tells you that the resource of that desire is in you, not the one that comes from the Lord. Even if the thing that you're desiring to do is the right thing. So, when you find yourself thinking of, of this as a labor, and it's, it feels like, like uh, hard, what is your response? What do you do about this? It doesn't mean stop doing it. If it's the right thing to do, it doesn't mean stop doing it. You know what it says? Oh, Lord, I'm really struggling. I don't want to X, Y, or Z. I see what your word says. I don't want to do that. Make me willing. Help me to yield my affections to yours. Make your affections mine. This is faith. God, I can't produce spiritual things. Only you can. So I'm going to commit myself to you to produce a spiritual desire to go along with this spiritual requirement. Remember, any action contrary to Scripture is without question fleshly. Without question. Any action, even with the best of intentions, that is not spirit-empowered, is fleshly. Jesus said it in John 3. That which is of the flesh or born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We need the Spirit to bring us to this desire to do what's right. Head back to Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 4. Abraham, also called in the book of Romans, the father of faith, is an example both of walking in the flesh, Hagar slash Ishmael, and walking in the spirit, Sarah, resulting in Isaac. You know, we're encouraged by God's willingness to include Abraham's failings. Not because we find ourselves excuse in Abraham's failings. Hey, Abraham failed, I failed. What's you that's not that's not the attitude. It's look at this is the father of the faith, and he was imperfect. I'm gonna fail. What is my response to failure? Turn away from me, my way and my sin. Turn toward God to view my Savior and His promises. This, this is the example we get. It's not to be encouraged by our sin, but it's so that we are not crippled by our sin. Paul uses Abraham's example as an illustration of the struggle that the Galatian believers find themselves in. Here they are. They're being told that in order to be right with God, they needed to follow the, the Judaistic Jewish ways. They needed to follow the customs of the the Jewish system. And Paul is saying, okay, you want to be under the law, listen to what the law says. Listen to what it says. Abraham tried that. Abraham tried to please the Lord in his flesh. And it resulted in some pretty tough problems. Two sons, two pathways, two messages. You see Ishmael, slave, Son of the flesh, son of the law, son of the current Jerusalem. That's the parallels that you see in the text. He is the Ishmael. He's the son of a slave. He's the son born in the flesh. He's the son that comes under the law. And he's the son from the current Jerusalem. What type of children does the law produce? Children of the flesh. 
It always does. The law does not make our children free or saved. However, the law does point our children to their need of the gospel, which ultimately frees and saves. The Old Covenant was designed to prepare God's people for the freedom delivered by Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is attributed to God's sons. Jesus' righteousness is placed on the the account of God's sons. We're not scraping and clawing to meet these standards in order to be accepted by God. The standards have been met. And believers are holy, accepted, and loved. The new covenant replaces the stony heart of unbelief, which is wired to gain acceptance with God through fleshly means, or to ignore God altogether and seek our own pleasure outside of God's design. God, through the new covenant, replaces that stony heart of unbelief with a heart of flesh, a heart that is wired and softened to do the will of God empowered by the Spirit. As the believer, is that you? As the believer surrenders to the Spirit, God's righteous requirements are displayed in his life, in addition to on his account. See, the difference between those two, one is positional truth. It's been categorized as, right now I'm holy, my standard is, is righteous. When God looks at me, He sees the righteousness of Christ because my account has been changed because of the righteousness of Christ. This is positional truth. But then there's condition. The way that we live. And that also is impacted by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, right now, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And and in a a few weeks, when we get to Galatians 5, we're going to see that same concept come to light. In Galatians 5.22, the Bible says this, But the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There's no law. You don't need to tell someone who's loving because of the Spirit, Hey, love your brother. Love your wife. Love your mom. Obey your mom. You don't need that. Why? When you're yielded to the Spirit, those things are in operation. Supernaturally. This is the way it's supposed to happen. We are now free to submit to a new, liberating Spirit. Now, where Ishmael is a slave and a a son of the flesh and a son of the law and he is representative of the current Jerusalem that is under bondage, Isaac is a son of the free woman. That comes from the Spirit, operating in accordance with grace, represented by the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem. So we look at this passage in verse 21. Says, Are you really, uh, do you really like what you see? Do you really want to hear what these false teachers are saying to you? Are you even seeing the full implications of this false gospel? Do you not listen to the law? Listen to the record of the law. Now, the law in this instance, in, in verse 21 is a reference to the first five books of the New Testament because the, the, the story, the account, comes from the book of Genesis. Part of the first five books of the Bible also categorized as the law. In verses 24 and 25, following the law as a means of gaining standing with God is to act as though you were born 
to God in slavery. That's what it says in verses 24 and 25. Look what it says. It says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What happened on Mount Sinai in Arabia? The giving of the law. And he's, he's illustrating, if you want to be under the law, you're a child of the law, you're a, a child of slavery. And, and that's not how God has made you. In verses 23 and 26, following God according to the Spirit is understanding that my relationship with God is settled, not by my actions, but by His. Did you hear that? My relationship with God is settled, not by my actions, but by His. He has promised to bless me through the one seed Jesus Christ. Verse 23, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through promise. Verse 26, But the Jerusalem above, the one from which you were born, she is our mother. This is a, a freeing Jerusalem. And then he quotes verse 27. And as we get to this next section, we're just going to do this briefly. I actually got a, a nice quote for you, a lengthy one, to try to help us work through this next section. It's going to be the only thing we talk about in this section. Know where true freedom comes from. Know where true freedom comes from. Tim Keller wrote in a commentary called Galatians for You. Listen carefully. It's going to be on the screen. It's lengthy. It's lengthy. But it helps us to understand this quote in verse 27, which says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So listen carefully to what he says. Paul now shows that the gospel of grace to the barren does not spring only from his figurative reading of Hagar and Sarah. It is the gospel which runs right through the Old Testament scriptures. So in verse 27 he quotes Isaiah 54.1 More are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Originally, this prophetic word was for the Jewish exiles in Babylon around 1,200 years after Abraham's time and 600 years before Paul's. The remaining Israelites thought their national life was over and that they would never return home or have their own country again. They seemed like failures, weak and helpless. Their exile was a punishment while other nations seemed strong and able. But God says to them through Isaiah, Now that you are helpless, you will see that it is the weak in whose lives my grace works. The strong are too busy relying on themselves. I will make you numerous and great. The prophecy of Isaiah looks back to Genesis 16, in which God looks down on two women, one beautiful and fertile, the other barren and old. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one. And through her family, um, excuse me, and, and through her family would come another unlikely son born to another woman who could have no expectation of being pregnant, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. And through that son, all the peoples of the world would be blessed, just as God promised Abraham and Sarah. This is how God's grace works. Now, Paul takes up the same story that Isaiah used 
and gives it even more full and wonderful application. The, the Galatians are being beaten up, spiritually speaking, by the false teachers. They are being told that they are too polluted and flawed simply to consider themselves loved children of God the moment they believe. But now Paul turns the tables and comforts the Galatians powerfully. They are the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong The people from good families, the folk with good records can be spiritually fruitful, enjoy the love and joy of God and transform the lives of others. But if the gospel is true, it does not matter who you are or who you were. You may be a spiritual and moral outcast as marginal as the single barren woman was in those ancient days, it does not matter. You will bear fruit, the kind that lasts. The Gospel says, grace is not just for fertile Hagars, but for barren Sarahs. If Sarah can have a future, anyone can. In fact, it goes deeper even than this, because Paul is saying that the Gospel of grace is especially for the barren. The able and the fertile think they can attain without God, and so they reject the gospel of grace. Paul is saying what Jesus says in the parable of the prodigal and elder brothers in Luke 15. The gospel shows us that it is the strong, moral, good, religious, and self-righteous who in the end are the slaves. Do you know what you're in for? If you want to be under the law as a means of pleasing God, do you know what you're in for? Nothing good. Do you realize where true freedom comes from? And he concludes this chapter by making a very simple statement. Do not play with a false gospel. Do not play with righteousness by self-reliance. Do not play with, I can please God if I'll just obey His commandments. That is contrary to the gospel of God's grace. Your being pleasing in the sight of God is totally dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. When that relationship is in full bloom and is operational and you're yielded to that Son through the Spirit... There will be a demonstration of the very kinds of things that Jesus Himself displayed in obedience to the Father. But that obedience is not our acceptance. Our acceptance is found in Christ. Look what He says in verses 29 and following. But just as at that time He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted Him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. You'll remember the scene. Sarah sees Ishmael making fun of Isaac and she's like, you know, like any mother, don't be messing with my boy! And she goes and sees Abraham. I don't like what's happening over here with this. Now there's something, it's pretty intense. It's not like he's just saying, oh, look at that little shrimp over there. If you look at the word and follow the, the wording of what Ishmael is saying about Isaac, it, it really can be, there's can be some dastardly things going on. And so she goes to Abraham and says, this should not be happen, happening. And Abraham's like, I don't like what you're saying. She says, cast him out. Cast out that slave woman. Cast out that son. He cannot be heir with, with my boy. Abraham's broken. 
And he hears from God confirmation to do this. He sends them with a, a slick of water, a skin of water. So go ahead, sends them off. God takes care of Ishmael, turns them into multiple nations. We know all of how that goes. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, this is exactly what's going on. These people are coming in and they're imposing upon the Son of Promise rules that ought not be so. And they're, they're putting you into bondage. Cast him out. You and they are not on the same team. Not on the same team. You're not serving the same God. You don't know the same God. You don't know the same Scriptures. They, theirs is a religion of self-will. Yours is a religion of God's benevolent grace. Verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And he transitioned from Sarah to the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember that? He transitioned from verse 26. Now we're not talking about Isaac and Sarah. We're talking about the, the home that is for believers that God graciously grants. Flesh and spirit are not buddies. You know this. You cannot be at peace with your flesh and the Spirit of God at the same time. Our inclination from a spiritual side is to gain God's approval by our kindness and charity. If you're a son of God through promise in accordance with the Gospel, you and I should order our lives in accordance with the Spirit who brings forth liberty. Liberty to display God's character without turmoil in our spirit. If you've been on your own program doing what you think is best, trying your own way, seeking to gain merit with God by your own good works, you need to repent of your sin. Turn from your ways and see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bloodied, crucified, buried, risen forever, seated at the right hand of God, always ready, always living to make intercession for you. Turn your gaze upon Him. He met all the requirements of the law. He became sin for you. He took God's righteous judgment against your sin so you wouldn't have to. He was buried and rose again the third day in order to make you a son of promise, a son of liberty. Do you want eternal life? Do you want eternal liberty? It's found only, only in the work of Jesus Christ. Trust Him and Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we, we struggle our flesh rears its ugly head and sometimes we cater to its affections and lusts. Sometimes they're immoral and sometimes they are sometimes they're whitewashed sepulchers. Either way, it's sinful. And we ask that you'd help us to crucify our flesh with its affections and lusts. To put on the new man who was created according to you, by you, in true righteousness and holiness. Help us to yield ourselves to You as our great, righteous Master who produces within us both affections and good works. 
We ask that you would display that in our lives and help us not to come into bondage to any other way but the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.